Good morning. It's a joy to be with you to continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This morning is our fifth sermon in Mark's Gospel. We've made it to chapter 2. And uh, I will say that um, next week we're going to have a brief break from the Gospel of Mark because we'll have a guest preacher, uh, a good friend, an old pastor of mine named Deepak Reju is going to come and bring us God's Word from 1 Kings 18. Uh, So um, do look forward to that. But if you've been with us in the Gospel of Mark, so far Jesus' ministry has taken off like a jet plane. We've already seen the way large crowds have followed him uh, everywhere he goes, and the way he teaches with a new kind of authority. You'll remember how in chapter 1, Jesus' first words recorded in the entire book were, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And the implication of his first sermon What he says immediately after, repent and believe in the gospel. And we can assume that that uh, continued to be his message as he made his way along the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding regions. Then if you remember, he called some very unlikely candidates to be his disciples and to follow him. He didn't call the religious scribes. He didn't call political officials or wealthy town celebrities. He called fishermen. And he specifically told them that he would make them become fishers of men. Then they go to the synagogue and he amazes people with his teaching. And the people say he teaches with authority, not like the scribes. So Mark emphasizes over and over again Jesus' ministry of teaching among the people. And as he goes along, you'll remember he performs many miracles. His message is for all men and women. And that message is to repent and believe. He actively recruits people to show his authority and his power and his desire to reach more people with this message. You'll remember that uh, as he goes about and he's performing miracles, crowds grow so large that he can't go anywhere unnoticed. Uh, His last two miracles specifically were those marginalized from society, a, a leper and a cripple. Well, the previous statement was our entry into what is sometimes called a, a conflict section, where Jesus begins to butt heads with the, the local religious leaders. In today's story, Jesus encounters another kind of marginalized figure, and his interaction with him sends shockwaves to those observing his actions. With that in mind, let's continue our study in the Gospel of Mark by reading Mark 2, verses 13 through 22. Uh, You can turn in your Bibles now, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, which you can find on page 837 of the Bibles provided. Uh, And by the way, if if you don't have a Bible at home to read, uh, feel free to take one of the black Bibles under the chairs as our gift to you. We would love for you to have one that you could read on your own at home. Hear now the word of the Lord. He, that's Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, as I said, this is the, the second set of verses which Jesus is coming into conflict with the Pharisees. Uh, before this, it was over the matter of forgiveness. And this time, it's a matter of company, of action. Well, this text, or this paragraph, these events can basically be divided into two main sections. Uh, the first set is from verses 13 to 17, in which the scribes ask, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, each set of verses has a question that goes along with it. The second set is verses 18 through 22, in which the people ask, why don't you fast? Each question asked has behind it an assumption or a misunderstanding about what Jesus is supposed to be like. The first section questions the company Jesus surrounds him with, himself with. And the second questions the activity they take part in. To put more simply, who Jesus is with and what Jesus is doing. Or really what he's not doing. But you get the idea. It all comes back to the fact that Jesus is not the religious leader uh, that they expected him to be. And as his ministry continues, their propensity turns into disagreement, which would eventually lead to hatred and would eventually lead to betrayal and crucifixion. Just like last week when Jesus healed the paralytic, he explains exactly why he does what he does. So the main idea of this passage is very clear for us, reading even nearly 2,000 years later. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, that is a glorious truth. That Jesus came not to call righteous, but sinners. Can't be avoided. That's what Christianity is all about. A message for people. In the way Jesus eats with sinners. So that's going to be my outline. It's a two-point outline with the same sentence. Jesus eats with sinners. Point one, we're going to focus on the sinners, so you can underline that if you're a note taker. Point two, 
We're going to be focusing on the the action of eating. Jesus eats with sinners. I hope that's clear. So, point one. The fact that Jesus spends his time with sinners is contrary to what we might have expected from any religious leader, especially the Messiah. So, in that case, it's understandable that the Pharisees and scribes are confused. Well, Jesus is anything but ordinary. Every page of Mark's gospel is full of surprises. The biggest surprise and perhaps even scandal of this text is who Jesus calls to be his follower. This man named Levi, who Mark tells us was a tax collector. Jesus was out teaching, as was his MO. He's out teaching the crowds, and as he goes along, he sees a man sitting at a booth, a small tax booth, Remember that the Sea of Galilee is a busy place for commerce, a busy place for business. Uh, Being next to the water would have been a good trading city and a good traveling route from the northern countries to the southern countries and and vice versa. So it would have been a place that you would expect uh, people to collect taxes on uh, goods brought over, travel taxes, and the like. You might have already noticed when we read the text that Mark Uh, And the Pharisees both refer to sinners and tax collectors right next to each other. Almost like the two are synonymous. He says them together three times in a row just in this short section of verses. Well, what you may not know is that tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low in Jewish society. That's something that was new to me as I studied the text this week. If lepers were physical outcasts, tax collectors were social outcasts. They were disliked. Uh, They were considered a lower class, class often mentioned in the Gospels along with sinners. In other Jewish writings like the Mishnah and Talmud, uh, they're even mentioned side by side next to murderers and adulterers. They were more than just despised. They were hated. They were expelled from synagogues disqualified to testify or rule in a court of law. And Jews were even forbidden from receiving money of any kind from them because uh, it was just assumed that the money given was likely gained by some kind of dishonest profit. Now, I should be perfectly clear here that the Roman tax system is completely different from uh, the tax system here in the U.S., I should stress that this passage in no way is making any kind of commentary uh, whatsoever about the IRS or the U.S. government. And I'll try to explain the Roman system, and I think you'll see uh, why it is set up the way it is. But Rome had large regional sums that they required from large areas. And they would contract out the collecting of this sum out to groups of tax collectors. Uh, There's... There's multiple layers in the system, but the main idea is that Rome didn't really care where the money came from or how they got it. They only cared that they got it. And so you had wealthy men like Levi or Zacchaeus, who we hear is the chief tax collector, would pay the money up front, um, and they would then get the job, and the team of tax collectors would go about collecting from the people. Uh, They were required to give whatever taxes were demanded from the tax collectors, And no one really knew how much they had, how much they needed to collect, where they were in collecting that amount. 
So from the tax collector perspective, once they got their money back that they had already paid Rome, whatever extra or additional money they brought in was to be pocketed. It was for their own financial gain. Well, that's the reason the professional, the profession as a whole was looked down on. They were money launderers, disowned by their families, uh, considered traitors even. Their very existence was a reminder of Roman domination over the Jewish people. And, you know, in addition to roads being built from tax money, what else is it going to? Pagan temples. So anyone who made tax collecting their profession had the reputation of exploiting people, their own people, for selfish greed. If there's anyone you would expect Jesus to avoid knowing these things, it would be tax collectors. So just imagine what would be going through people's heads to see Jesus call someone like Levi to follow him. And for Levi to follow, literally probably leaving money on the table, walking away from a day of profit in a busy city. Now you'll notice there's a striking similarity between this event and that time in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, when Jesus calls the four fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, to follow him. Uh, They immediately drop their nets, just like Levi drops what he's doing, and they follow him, showcasing the authority Jesus teaches and calls people to himself. When Jesus gives a command, men obey. And that's what happens here with Levi. Now, once again, we see the authority of Jesus commanding obedience and surrounding himself with unlikely characters. You know, tax collectors, they had a whole world at their fingertips, in a sense. They had more money than they knew what to do with, no accountability, and probably no shame they wouldn't have already learned how to ignore. But Jesus shows that even the most unlikely characters are not unfit to be his disciples. So who are the people in your life that you think are unlikely to follow Jesus? Are there people that you think would be too far off morally to come to Jesus? One of the reasons Jesus calls Levi is to show the world that even the lowest of the low, even tax collectors, can become followers of Jesus. It's a picture of Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Because the greater the sinner, the more merciful and powerful is the call of Jesus to forgive him. I wonder what Jesus' other disciples were thinking when he called Levi. Them being fishermen, they probably, if not with Levi directly, would have had uh, run-ins with other tax collectors and uh, certainly probably did not like them either. I can only imagine some kind of internal resistance to the idea. You know who this guy is? But Jesus calls him anyway. And what we learn is that this tax collector, Levi, becomes someone we know more popularly as Matthew the author of the first gospel in the New Testament. It was common in that time to have multiple names. So we know Simon, who was also Peter. Uh, And here we have Levi, who is Matthew. Luke tells us in his account that Levi hosted a feast for them afterwards. So we know that it's uh, Levi's house that they go to after when it says at his house. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, 
many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus spending time with them? There's an implied expectation behind that question. That Jesus shouldn't be eating with those kinds of people. Instead, he should be eating with religious folks. Luke tells us that uh, when they ask this question in Luke's account of this event, uh, he says they ask with grumbling. So you can imagine the pride and bitterness welling up uh, of those watching Jesus in the house. And I take uh, verse 15 to mean that Jesus called Levi, and maybe there were others who went with Levi either at that moment, or at least later he invited a number of his friends to meet his new Lord. Jesus was teaching beside the sea, and we know that many followed him, so who knows how many disciples and crowds followed from them at that point. And it being Levi's house house with the extraordinary amount of wealth meant that this was not just supper, this was a feast. This was a huge party. And when the scribes asked the question, notice they don't ask Jesus, but his disciples. Jesus overhears them, and he responds in verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news, that Jesus came for sinners, and praise God that he did. He did not come for the righteous. Uh, just, Just like a doctor in the army who avoids all of the people who need medical attention, Just imagine that for a minute. That's not how Jesus is. Jesus is a Savior who came to save people who need saving. Sinners. That's what the church is. A place for sinners. Friend, if you're visiting, I don't know what your past experience is with religion or uh, or churches in general or Christians, but I can tell you what a Christian is. He or she is a sinner saved by grace. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Isaiah 59.2 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6. Jesus came to save sinners. The Pharisees took pride in living a devout life. In fact, their name, Pharisees, even means separated ones or holy ones. But friends, Jesus didn't live his life separated from people in a monastery or on a mountain away from civilization. He lived with people and not just any people. He spent time with sinners That's who Jesus came to call. So what can we say about this? First, Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees didn't need him. He wasn't saying that they were actually righteous, nor was he implying that there was some kind of other way to attain righteousness apart from Christ. In fact, they were ironically the most needy people because they were blind to their sinful condition. 
They thought of themselves as righteous and not in need of saving. But Jesus did not come for people who are not needy. Second, note the first sign of health is a recognition of sickness and a willingness to treat it. Therefore, those who know they are sinners are much closer to the kingdom of God than those who are like the Pharisees who looked down on others because they didn't think they were good enough. So are there people in your life that you look down on in this way? Because they have a certain kind of lifestyle or a certain kind of job? Pray that the Lord would protect us as a church from this kind of sinful arrogance that we see in the scribes. Do you look for opportunities to spend time with non-Christians? That's something interesting to observe here about Jesus. He seems to just be freely spending time with them. And I'm not saying that every time we uh, spend time with non-Christians, we're called we're called to be in the world and not of it. So I'm not saying that every single time we hang out with non-Christians, we have to be preaching the gospel to them. Repentance was a part of Jesus' message, but it appears here that he's just simply dining with them. Jesus demonstrates he can call the most despised to his side. Notice that Jesus didn't make repentance a prerequisite for spending time with sinners. We have no idea how many of these tax collectors ended up actually becoming his disciples, but we know of at least one. Even still, Christ shows love abundantly. Fourth, while it doesn't say uh, he preached to them, uh, I think this just shows that there are times to speak the truth in love, and there are times perhaps to just be there as a friend or a family member to non-Christians. This is going to take much wisdom, and I find that we often, find, we often fall on one or the other side, where we uh, see it as a mission to only speak the, the truth, uh, or we never do. Jesus later, uh, in his ministry, tells his disciples to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, so we should be too. Well, that's the company Jesus is with. Jesus eats with sinners, Now let's think about the things that they're doing. Jesus eats with sinners. This is point two. You can underline the word eats if you're taking notes. Because the question is about why Jesus is eating with his disciples while the religious are fasting. Our text says in verse 18 that uh, some people ask why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, which is basically a way of asking why Jesus isn't fasting. And behind that assumption... Uh, Behind that question is an assumption that Jesus should be fasting. Now, it's interesting that John's disciples are mentioned here uh, because John believed in Jesus. But remember that John has already been arrested and put in prison back in chapter 1, verse 14. So he's not in the picture. And we know that John also had a fruitful ministry. So a number of his disciples are here. But, you know, what's interesting is they didn't exactly get along with the Pharisees either. Uh, In fact, there's a point where John calls the Pharisees brood of vipers. Why do I say that? Well, if even those people who feel that way towards one another are fasting, everyone is fasting. So Jesus, why aren't you? What's the deal? Well, first, uh, if you're not familiar, what is fasting? To fast is to abstain intentionally from food or water 
or both, for the specific purpose of using hunger or thirst as a reminder of your need for God. And it was a worshipful way to acknowledge that God is more important than food itself. Jews used it for uh, times to uh, generate humility, for times of prayer, for times of grieving. Jews are only commanded to do this as a nation one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, You can read about that in Leviticus 16. It's uh, still practiced today among practicing Jews. It's referred to as Yom Kippur. Uh, But it was the day that the high priest of Israel would go into the Holy of Holies and atone for the sins of the nation so that people would, uh, in response, fast because of their neediness of atonement. But the kind of fasting done here by the Pharisees and John's disciples was not in observance with the Torah, but of their own regulations that they added on. Uh, There are plenty of occasions throughout Scripture where we see people fast for other reasons. For example, David, when his son becomes ill, fasts. uh, And it says he sought God on behalf of his child, concentrated devotional time. When Jonah goes to Nineveh and and preaches his nine-word sermon to them, uh, the whole nation says they called for a a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the king commanded everyone to hunger mightily for God. So scripture tells us in Luke uh, chapter 18 that these Pharisees fasted twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, just out of their own rule. And Jesus addresses this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Uh, Jesus says that they, they fast uh, intentionally to be seen by others, and they look gloomy so that people pity them. <laughs> and so Jesus says, when you fast, don't fast like the hypocrites. Um, that doesn't honor the Lord. So if Jesus is not condemning fasting, then why isn't he fasting? Well, because the people that are fasting are missing the point of fasting. If fasting is a discipline for the purpose of reminding them of their need for God, of their need for atonement and cleansing, of their need for God's presence, look again at verse 19, what Jesus says to them. His answer, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. So Jesus indicates there is in fact a time set for fasting, but not while Jesus is among them. While Jesus is there with them, it's a time of celebration, like a wedding feast. Uh, You know, if you've been to a wedding, there's a special, unique kind of excitement that... uh, comes around whenever the bride or the groom enter into the room or come to the table. And that's because they're the very reason for the occasion. Well, guests in uh, our weddings in our culture, they they only last an evening, probably. Uh, But Jewish weddings, they last an entire week. So they were large parties. Uh, And Jesus uses this image to communicate the kind of celebration that should be going on because he is there among them. Well, what's the implication uh, in this episode with Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors? He's saying that he is the groom of his people. Therefore, they don't need to isolate themselves or mourn or fast. They don't need to deprive themselves and to seek God under the circumstances 
they can rejoice. Now, we know Ephesians 5 tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. So we're familiar with this idea of Christ as the groom. But you know what's interesting? The Messiah is not mentioned anywhere in the entire Old Testament as being a bridegroom of Israel. It's only in the New Testament when we learn about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the mystery of marriage reflecting Christ's love for the church. But you know who is depicted as the groom of Israel in the Old Testament? Yahweh alone is the husband of Israel. And that's why their idolatry is seen as spiritual adultery. So Jesus as the groom of the new covenant people identifies once again Jesus with God himself. Come in the flesh to commune with his people. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, for this reason, fasting just doesn't make sense when Jesus is around. And he illustrates that point with two parables. And uh, they may seem odd to you at first, verses 21 through 22. talks about putting a patch on an old garment and um, new wine in old wineskins. Well, the basic idea here, just imagine an old T-shirt with a hole in it. And uh, you've already washed this a hundred times, of course. It's your favorite shirt. And uh, so it has a hole, and you're sad about that. So you try to get a patch and sew it up, but the patch itself has never been washed before. So when you go to wash your, your shirt, the patch itself shrinks, and the stitches break away, and a worse tear is made. Well, similarly, uh, they would store wine in uh, leather skins, animal skins, and typically new wine would ferment and release gases, and the leather would expand, and eventually it would dry out and crack. So after an old widened skin was used, if you put new wine into it, the fermentation would be too much and it would crack and break, ruining both the wine and the skins. Well, what's going on here? To fast while Jesus is near them is to try to patch up an old garment, uh, an old tattered garment, or to put a new wine into old wineskins. There's no need to try to fit Jesus into the old system. Jesus' is coming is like an, an entirely new garment, fresh wine with new wineskins. Jesus is simply using these images to show that their lives should not continue the same way with Jesus coming. Jesus is not just another tradition or rabbinical law to tack on to life. With him comes freedom from the law and a new covenant completely. Jesus ushers in this new era. So what does this mean for us? Similarly, we shouldn't live our lives as if Jesus has not come. Our lives after coming to Christ should look very different than before we knew Jesus. Jesus can't just be added on to your life like a new patch on an old garment. You can't be a follower of Jesus while continuing to live uh, the way you want we know scripture says you can't serve two masters. He's an entirely new equation. He's not just a, a patch on a leaking vessel. He's an entirely new ship. So what did Jesus mean in verse 20 when he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them? What time is he talking about there? And then they will fast in that day. Well, if there was no need for the disciples to fast while Jesus 
was present among them in the flesh, then it would certainly mean that when he was not with them bodily, it would be appropriate to fast. This image of a bridegroom is also used in Matthew's gospel, but in that instance, uh, he refers to waiting for the bridegroom, and it's referring to the second coming of Jesus. We also find similar language in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, after Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to over 500 witnesses, it says, He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. It's that same word, took. So I think Jesus here is referring to the current time in which the church is filled with his spirit but still waits longingly for the bridegroom to return. Another use of this bride and groom language is in John 14, verse 2, when Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's a picture of a bridegroom bringing his bride to a bridal chamber. So should we continue to fast today? There are some who say that Christ's coming here uh, and the lack of a command to fast means that we don't need to and the law is fulfilled. Um, It's not commanded in the same way, say, for example, as pray without ceasing. That's just so clear. And I know many Christians who take that stance, that we we don't need to fast and therefore they won't. And recognize that because it's not a command explicitly, then I wouldn't command you explicitly uh, to fast. But I do think it can be very useful to fast. Not just from food, but from things like technology. Those are things I consume regularly. If you're new to the idea, I would recommend a book called Spiritual Disciplines by Don Whitney, where he talks about how to go about doing this. And I'd recommend you ask other Christians how they fast, or if they do. Certainly you can feel free to ask David or Oscar or myself. But know, um, if you choose to fast, do it privately, as Jesus instructed, not to be seen by others. Use it as a time of repentance, and times of grief or mourning, or simply to draw near to God. It does teach us that we are a needy people. Start small, like a a single meal. The length of time or the size of the sacrifice is not the point in fasting. And if you have any questions about maybe your health when it comes to fasting, please do not fast or consult with a doctor first. The goal of fasting is not just to give something up for the sake of giving it up. The goal is God. It's to long for Him. And when you do, think not just about the next meal that you'll have on earth, but the meal you'll have in heaven with the Lamb. I think when Jesus says, when you fast, he's assuming that fasting will mark his disciples. And in that uh, case, I don't think that a command is really necessary. I'd also encourage you that most of church history, Christians have viewed fasting Uh, Not as a negative time of being deprived, but as a positive grace from the Lord for them to experience God's presence in a new and different way. 
In our story this morning, Mark describes Jesus as reclining at table, which only happens a few times in Mark. And do you want to know the next time that Jesus would recline at table with sinners and tax collectors? It was in chapter 14, when Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples and institutes the Lord's Supper. A reminder of the sacrifice made for us and a preview of the banquet in heaven that waits. How appropriate then that we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning today. Our Father in heaven, we praise you this morning because you did not do our own sin. If it were up to us, Lord, who could stand before you? But in love, you sent your Son, Jesus, to live the perfect, obedient life and to die on our behalf, absorbing the penalty we deserved. Jesus, we praise you that you came not to call the righteous, but sinners, and that by your wounds we are healed. Help us to be a compassionate people the way you have been compassionate toward us. We can only wonder why we were invited to sit at your table and to feast with you. And we long for the day that we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb to dine with you in eternity. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.